0: morning we'll be reading from the 19th chapter of Acts, verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly,
1: And join me, if you would, at Acts chapter 19. I guess one of the things that's on the agenda for tonight's meeting is the uh, fact that I'm going to be taking a sabbatical. <laughs> no, I'm not in trouble. Some people have already asked. And uh, no, I'm not having a midlife crisis. Although that's the more real possibility of the two. The elders, you know, said, give me a couple of months to go find myself in midlife, maybe. I don't know. No, that's not true. Uh, But we'll talk more about that tonight. By the way, if you're a member of Delaware Bible Church, I heavily encourage you to come tonight. Pastor Brad, Jelaine Van Gordon, uh, the Finance Committee have worked diligently to put our budget together. It's one of the things that the congregation has to vote on according to our Constitution, we have to vote on the uh, annual operating budget tonight. We'll learn about the annual operating budget. Then you'll have some time to think and pray about it, ask any questions that you might have, and then we'll come together again to vote on the annual operating budget beginning August 1st. So uh, the Lord has been so good to this church. I mean, we carry no debt. We have uh, uh, your giving uh, faithfully increases year over year, and uh, even through the pandemic, we are very, we are very blessed indeed. Well, this week's sermon, which I've entitled "Clean Up in Ephesus," uh, you have to kind of get a little bit of. I have to give you some background from last week to to fill in the holes in case you weren't here. By the way, I saw a lot of new faces today. My name is Pastor Scott. Nice to meet you, and uh, I'd love to love to greet you later out in the hallway. But um, I need to give you a little bit of context going into today's message, and that context is very simple to understand. Last week, we talked about a guy named Apollos who appeared on the scene in Ephesus. And Apollos was a good man, an articulate man, Jewish man, but he was a follower of Jesus. And uh, he had an incomplete understanding of the good news. He only understood Jesus up to the baptism of John, and he didn't understand anything kind of past that. And so as he was teaching and giving all this information out, Uh, Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside and uh, corrected him and brought him up to speed on what else was going on. And uh, that was great. And he took that uh, as true information. And then uh, if you read the text, it sounds like not too long after that, he set off for Achaia to minister there, which you got to cross some water to get there from from Ephesus and and, uh, probably was in Corinth, which is the capital city of Achaia. So he has moved on, and now he is ministering in Corinth, which the text will tell us today. And Paul is going to come on the scene in Ephesus again. He's been there once. Now he's on his third missionary journey. He's going to be there again, and he's going to encounter some disciples. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. But you have to have that little bit of information going into today. One of the things that's just as by way of introduction, one of the things that's just true about us as people is that we are living right now, whether you know this or not, whether you're cognizant of it or not, but we are living right now in twenty twenty three United States of America midwest Ohio we are living in the consequences of or the results of the thinking of our forefathers of our ancestors right uh, the 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 things that they thought were true, the things that they thought were good were Our reality is shaped by that. For example, why are we sitting in rows in church today? I mean, I don't know. Bible doesn't say anything about that, right? Why not have a building shaped like a circle? Why have a building? Bible doesn't say a lot about that, right? But our forefathers, our ancestors thought it'd be good for us to have a building to gather in. Can't disagree with that. It's a good thought. They built a building. But they didn't build this uh, like a stadium where it's round, you know, and we all sit it around the speaker. That'd be kind of weird having people behind me, but uh, they, they chose this way. So we're living in the consequences of that today, right? And all the different, the way we do things, the fact that I'm standing up here on a little bit of an elevated platform that I'm speaking behind this desk or pulpit or whatever you want to call it, these things are just products of the thinking of the past, right? not saying it's good or bad. It's not bad. Uh, I'm just saying we have to recognize that. And that's true not only in the church, but also in the world that we live in. So, for example, you know, one of the things that's just going on in our world today is uh, critical theory is something that's uh, taking hold in our world today. And critical theory is not new. It's actually generations old. It started in Germany a long time ago. I think in the 40s, something like that in a place, uh, in an an educational environment, the Frankfurt School. And um, the thinking was, or the idea was, is that when we try to uh, meet out justice or when we try to think about how we treat each other as human beings, there's these dynamics that are at play of power and oppression and all these kinds of things. And critical theory was really designed to think about how does that work? How does that flesh itself out in everyday life? and how should we, or should we, attempt to compensate for or be critical of the way it works so that we can do a better job of being equi- be equitable with each other or things like that? And you really don't hear too much about critical theory today. It was, it was kind of in the legal world for a long time. Um, and then, you know, for example, should we prosecute someone who came from an impoverished? Uh, or perhaps a minority background different than we prosecute someone from a, a, a place of, of wealth and prestige and all this kind of stuff? Should we think about how we prosecute those as different? That was kind of in the legal world for a while. And now it's made its way into uh, gender and um, you know critical gender theory, critical race theory. And those are the things that we are experiencing today. They started in Germany a long time ago. Those ideas started in Germany. They've matriculated through the... Uh, The uh, uh, educational institutions of our world, mostly in the West, and now they're making their way into our everyday lives. And what should we do about that, right? What should we do about that? Um, Well, what we're going to see in the text today is at least a little bit helpful. But let me, before I end our kind of opening analogy, let me just say this, is that, uh, you know, we as Christians, obviously we trust God's word, at least I hope we do, And uh, one of the things that we see in God's word is when he, for example, in the Old Testament law, uh, when he tells the people how to mete out justice, it's a pretty simple process. Somebody does the crime, then they have to do the punishment, right? They do the crime, they got to do the time. And uh, it's very clear in the text of scripture that we are to show no partiality and and that we are to treat everyone as equal. And actually, God gets on the people of Israel when they practice corruption, when someone of a high social status commits the same crime as someone of a low social status, and they are punished differently. God gets on the people about that and calls that, you know, corruption, and God wants to drive that out of his sight. So what I take away from that, what I take away from that is that given the fact that God has not equipped us with the ability to read minds— that the best shot that we have at justice in this world, right, is to practice justice as we, as our forefathers passed down to us, we, we have these images of Lady Justice, right? And she's blindfolded and she's holding a, a set of scales that are equally balanced. And the whole idea of that is that justice is blind and that justice has fair scales. There's all kinds of proverbs by the way, you can go look them up about how the Lord hates imbalanced scales, you know corrupt scales, all these kinds of things. That's the best hope that we have right of meeting out justice and so perhaps there's a day that's coming where critical theory will be corrected where where somebody will come along and and uh, say no these these ideas are no good and we need to we need to do better we need to correct this and uh, and perhaps it'll go for a lot longer and it'll and it'll you know, it'll cause all kinds of havoc in our, in our thinking, in our society. We don't know. I'm just saying that right now we're living in the ideas that were generated years and years and years ago. It's important for our text this morning. The big question that we're going to wrestle with is this. How does Acts 19 help us to understand the reality of gospel work? The reality of gospel work. Sometimes as you, as, as we've seen in the book of Acts, Paul is going to come into a completely, a, a territory that, that, nobody's ever heard of Jesus, and they're going to, he's going to proclaim Jesus, he's going to proclaim the gospel, and it's kind of fresh territory, and sometimes he's going to come up against people that have a misunderstanding or an incomplete understanding of Jesus, and that's kind of what we're going to see today, and that's why I call this cleanup in Ephesus. Now, for some reason, the way my brain works, uh, and, and I try to do this to make things memorable, but at the same time, my brain just doesn't work right all the time, and you're the beneficiaries of that. Uh, all the points today are in computer language. I don't know why. I just, I, I just, so the first point is copy and paste, copy and paste. Probably the most useful function on a computer if we're not, and if you don't use hot keys, then you're not a Gen Xer, right? That's what it's. if you're using your mouse to copy and paste, that's a slow, and you young people need to learn hot keys. Okay, I, I'm going to get off my soapbox. Okay, <clears throat> all right, so anyway, Copy and paste. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Acts chapter 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. uh, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. Let's stop right there. So the text tells us Apollos is in Corinth. They've missed each other. They're not going to meet. Apollos has gone on to Corinth. Paul is now in Ephesus. And look what it says at the end of verse 3. It's very interesting the way Luke writes this. At least it is to me. There he found some disciples. And we're left hanging kind of as the reader going, well, disciples of who or what? Are these disciples of Jesus? Are these disciples of Paul? Or are these uh, uh, disciples of Apollos? And I think that's going to reveal itself here uh, in the next next, uh, couple of verses. Verse two says, "And and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay, so Paul has picked up on the fact that these guys know Jesus they understand Jesus they've got some fundamental working understanding here but he's i think he's starting to sense that maybe something's a little off and so he starts asking a couple of x-ray questions to get to the get to the bottom of this and and they said right and they said no we have not even heard that there is a holy spirit okay so these guys are kind of ignorant of this right they have incomplete knowledge right they are they are not there yet. Um, the data got uh, somehow uh, mixed up in transmission, or they they received everything that Apollos had told them. But they but Apollos's, because Apollos' information or his knowledge was incomplete, he passed on incomplete knowledge to the people that followed him. And in case you're wondering, yeah, I think these guys are disciples of Apollos. And here's why, why I think that. I think that Luke decided to juxtapose or put side by side these two passages. So if we go up to Luke or Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24, we read this. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he he himself you, you know because there's a similarity here, you see he only knew up to the baptism of John and these disciples only know up to the baptism of John. It's it's speculated and I think it's there's good evidence to suggest that these guys are disciples of Apollos. They're following what he taught them. And this makes sense, right? Uh, Luke Luke chapter 6 verse 40 says A disciple is not above his teacher But everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher Folks, this is why it's such a good idea for you To be a good handler A good understander of the word of God Because the people that you come into contact with And that you have an opportunity to speak some truth into their life And I have a little sticker on my computer I don't know if anybody's seen me working on my computer My little laptop this is every Christian is a counselor. So when you dispense counsel, when you dispense wisdom, if you have a misunderstanding of the Word of God, then you're probably going to transmit that to the next person. So it's important that we cut it straight. Anyway, uh, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is what Jesus said. So what do we have here? We have a few, we have about 12 cut and paste. Disciples. Again, just to reinforce this point, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You know, this is probably goes without saying here, but I'm going to say it this morning. Uh, if you're not in the word of God for yourself regularly, then how can you possibly live up to what Christ asks us to do? Again, it's one thing to go to a church that's a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church where your pastor or your pastoral staff has gone to Bible college, seminary, and all these kinds of things. But you have speak into people's lives that I will never, ever meet. And the pastoral staff will never, ever meet. And oh, by the way, you're not commanded to just have a good pastoral staff. You're commanded to be a workman approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, I just want to buttress this point before I move on by saying this. Uh, let me tell you about my seminary experience. My seminary experience was I went to seminary, I went for two whole weeks, and I sat there and we read the Bible through out loud one whole time and then we were done. Right? That's exactly what happened, right? No, that's, that was a fib. That's not what happened at all. The Bible cannot be learned effectively over a course of two weeks just reading it out loud. And I wouldn't suggest that you try it. Instead, just like the rest of your life, when you're trying to learn a new skill, you have to learn it in bite-sized chunks, and you have to pair your learning with application and practice. My dad always told me, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Raise your hand if you ever took a Spanish class in high school. Raise your hand if you're fluent in Spanish. (laughs) Have I made my point? Read your Bible. Start small, five minutes a day. Work your way up, but read it. Pick a verse or two out that the Lord has laid on your heart. Copy it down on a piece of paper. In other words, figure out some process to meditate on Scripture so that you'll be like the man in Psalm 1 who is blessed why, has he, why is he blessed? Why is he like a tree that's planted near the streams of water, who le- whose leaves do not wither, who produces fruit in season? Why is he like that? Because he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. So, we need to be competent in the word. The next thing we see here is a software upgrade. Uh, we get a software upgrade. So look at verses 4 and 5 of Acts chapter 19. And Paul said... So he's explaining to these disciples now, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. John's baptism was different than the baptism that Brinsley Zirkel experienced today. So let's talk about this for just a second John was a forerunner of Jesus Christ The text, the scriptures make that clear At the very last, the very last lines of the Old Testament Says, I'm going to send Elijah, I'm going to send a forerunner, right? And he's going to prepare the way for the Lord And then the New Testament opens up and what do we see? We see this obscure crazy man out in the wilderness Wearing camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist Eating locusts and honey And his name is John the Baptist, and he's out there proclaiming, right, uh, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom. And he's telling people to repent. Now, you have to know a little bit of history to understand baptism really well. If you go to Jerusalem today, which I would encourage you, if you ever get the opportunity, do it. If you go to Jerusalem today, and you go around the old city, and you go around the temple complex, you're going to find these baths that are there that you kind of step down into, and then you kind of turn a corner, and then you step back out. It's kind of an assembly line process. And what's that all about? It's about the ceremonial washing that has to take place before you approach God and make your sacrifices. Well, John, understanding that that's already a part of their culture, right, John uh, proclaimed this baptism of repentance. So he's inviting people to confess their sin, to turn away from their sin, to, to stop doing life their way and start doing life God's way. And the way that he's offering them to kind of drive a stake in the ground and say that they're gonna do that is to participate in this washing in the Jordan. He was at the Jordan River, this washing, this baptism, this immersion. Jesus comes along later, and of course, Jesus approaches John the Baptist, and he is baptized in the Jordan River as well. Now, test question. The first, the first, okay, I'm just going to tell you. First service was weak on this, okay? They were weak. You guys got to do better. Your second service, you're the big show, okay? You got to do better. So, question. Did Jesus need to be baptized for the forgiveness of his sins? No. You nailed it. Okay? I'm telling first service on you because you guys absolutely know. No! He did not need to be baptized for the remission of his sin. He, Jesus was holy. Jesus was sinless. Jesus was God in the flesh. Matthew three fifteen tells us that Jesus did this. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus laid a path laid a way for us to walk after him that we could walk according to his way and that's what brinsley and uh, other believers today participate in we don't participate in john the baptist's baptism we don't we don't participate in the same way that jesus did when he was baptized because he was perfect and did not need the forgiveness of sins When we come to be baptized, we are following Jesus in the waters of baptism. We are being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in doing that, we are practicing obedience to Jesus and what He asked us to do. The promise is is that the Holy Spirit is going to come into our lives. We're going to have access to the Word of God, obviously. The Holy Spirit's going to come into our lives to empower us. And as we yield ourselves to him, as we surrender ourselves to him and say yes to God and no to self, his, his commitment is to grow us and change us and make us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to argue with you today just a little bit that the reason that many of us aren't, I'll throw me in there, growing as we ought to grow is because we're not yielded to God. We are not saying, yes, Lord, and no to self. And so this is a gut check for you this morning. Are you submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ? In the Old Testament and in, and in uh, theological circles, there's something that we talk about from the Old Testament called the obedience formula. It's, it's so profound. It's hard. I know. It's really profound to think about. It's, it, here's the obedience formula. God says it, and then someone does it in obedience to God. That's the obedience formula. And, and it's most exemplified, and scholars talk about this a lot, in Genesis 12, 1 to 4. This is Abraham. Before he was named Abraham, he was Abram, and this is what the text says. This is Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, I want you to keep in mind that he's not telling Abram where he's sending him. He's saying, leave, leave now, and I'll show you later where you're going. I just want to make that clear. We don't want to, Abram didn't know where he was going yet when he made the decision that he's going to make. Verse two, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here it is, the obedience formula. Verse four, so Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, one of the things that we also talk about in theological circles is the disobedience formula, and the disobedience formula is best exemplified by the prophet who? Jonah, somebody said it, Jonah. The Lord said, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and you know, he's, you're gonna proclaim the word there and everything, and, and you know, yet how many days, 30 days, and Nineveh will fall. And Jonah gets up, and he goes to? Karshish, which is, if you look at a map, it's incredibly fun to study Bible geography, 180 degrees the wrong direction. You know, God said, go that way, and he went that way. And God graciously, mercifully, and I'm, I'm saying this with, with 100% sincerity, I'm not joking at all, God graciously provided a fish to swallow Jonah up and to keep him inside there for a while and vomit him out on dry ground a few days later so that Jonah would get his head screwed on straight. Amen? Now, we, a lot of people think it's a crazy story. I, I think it's 100% true, and I think that God did it because of the hardness of the human heart, and for God's love and mercy for Jonah, he swallowed him up in that fish, and he gave Jonah a time out to think about what he was doing, and when he spit him up on dry ground, he said again to Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and what did Jonah do? He went to Nineveh. Now, he wasn't the picture of excellent obedience, but you get the point of what I'm trying to say. Sometimes we think that trials come into our lives, and sometimes we think they come into our lives because God hates us, and I can assure you that that's not true at all. God loves you so much, and God wants you to grow and change, become more like his son, Jesus Christ, because that, would, that is what is good for you. And sometimes when you are commanded in Scripture to do a thing, and you choose to do the opposite thing, Sometimes God, in His grace and His mercy, can present you with the consequences of your actions so that you will grow. That's how much our God loves you. All right, you know, I just I just recalculated. You know, I'm like uh, I'm like your GPS in your car. We had a baptism today, and so I got I got to hustle a little bit faster. Third point connecting to the cloud. Now you're going to have to give me some latitude on this one. I know this is, this is a weird way to say it, but give me some latitude on this. Look at verses six to eight. It says this, when, this is Acts 19, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months, bold spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of god all right so we've baptized brinsley so now don't get up brinsley now we're going to bring her up here and i'm going to lay my hands on her and she's going to begin speaking in tongues and prophesying right that's what we're to take away from the scripture right well you say no but do you know why but do you know why Well, here's some things to chew on this morning as we think about this scripture. First of all, so obviously connecting to the cloud is my little funny way of saying that these men were finally, they finally got a complete understanding of what was going on, of who Jesus was and what he came to accomplish, his death, burial, and resurrection. They were baptized in the name of Jesus, right? And now uh, Paul lays his hands on him and they are given the Holy Spirit and power. Power to prophesy, power to speak in tongues. Just a few things. There is no power in an incomplete gospel. And I, and I put gospel in small g, and I put scare quotes around it, so you know what I'm talking about, is anything that's not the true gospel. Anything that's not an understanding that we're all sinners, the wages of sin is death, that Jesus came to, you know, as God in the flesh to live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins, resurrect again on the third day, so that if we put our trust in Him, right, if we, we know that He died on the cross for our sins, we believe that it's true, and we put the weight of our life on to what He says is true, meaning we choose to obey Him. That's what trust means or believe means, knowledge, assent, trust, then we will be saved. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, and it is absolutely awesome and life-changing. But there is no power in an incomplete gospel. In our community, and, and somebody pointed out to me today that there's more than four, but just hang with me here. In our community, there are about four United Methodist Churches, or at least there used to be four United Methodist Churches. Asbury, William Street, uh, New Beginnings and Bell Point United Methodist and for longer than I've been here, so I've been here a little over 10 years, for longer than I've been here there's been tension in the United Methodist Church because the folks up at the higher upper echelons the leaders, the bishops, the, the regional authorities the seminaries have adopted a view of scripture that it's not the inspired inerrant word of God They've adopted a view of Scripture that that portrays the gospel as not being that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but that He came to teach us, apparently, how to be a better person, right? And so there's been kind of tension between folks that have wandered away from the faith once given to the saints and those who those United Methodist congregations locally who would say, no, we do believe that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. And we do believe that the gospel is what the Bible says that it is. And that tension just in the time since I've been here has kind of built up to the point where now the church has decided that it's time to part ways. And that's the split. The split is we believe, and that split works its way out in all different kinds of ways. ordaining same-sex marriage or blessing same-sex marriages, ordaining uh, homosexual clergy. For those that don't believe that the Bible is the inspired and word of God, and those that do, that, that it's finally time for them to decide to part ways. And so the leadership, this is what I'm being told by those that are inside, the leadership of the United Methodist Church made a way for churches that believe the way we do to leave gracefully, right? And they announced that they thought that a few churches here and there would would leave. And in the state of Ohio, so far, about 400 have left, including some of the largest United Methodist congregations in the state. They have gone through a process called disaffiliation. So what were once four United Methodist churches, about four in our community, there are now two, William Street and Asbury. And there are two churches that are now separated from the United Methodists who hold to the same understanding of Scripture and to the understanding of the gospel that we do. William Street—I'm sorry, not William Street, uh, sorry—New Beginnings and Bell Point. Why? Why What should we take away from this? Well, I will tell you this, and this is widely reported, that the congregations that have departed from an understanding of the Bible, that it's the inspired and errant word of God and a biblical understanding of the gospel, they are dying. And folks, the 400 churches in Ohio that have left is just wave one of what I'm told and I'm assured are many waves to come of churches, local congregations leaving the United Methodist Church because of their, and I'm going to use a harsh word but it's an accurate word because of their apostasy. They've turned away from the faith. I don't say this to be mean or judgmental. I love Dave Carter over at New Beginnings Church now, and I love Paul McCullough at Bell Point Community Church now. Those are men that are doing good gospel work, and they're my brothers in Christ. I say it to say, this is the result of walking away from the true gospel. These men received Holy Spirit power. They did, and this is consistent with the book of Acts. Acts chapter one, verse eight says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 2.17, quoting an Old Testament prophet says this, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. We're seeing that today in our text in the form of these men, their hands being laid on by Paul, and they are receiving the gift of tongues, which is useful in Ephesus, which is a multi-language city, and they are also prophesying. Now, we all agreed earlier that that we're not going to bring Brinsley up, I'm not going to put my hands on her, and we're not going to have her speak in tongues and prophesy. And then I said, why? And then I heard some crickets, okay? Here's why. And this is, this is my, I'm telling you my best understanding, and I'm telling you that I'm not uh, God's gift to the answer to this question, but I'm saying that this is my best understanding. First of all, Paul laid hands on These men because it was symbolic of it was it was an Old Testament practice and it was symbolic of the continuation of the people of God the continuance of the church. It's not something that's commanded for us to do today necessarily for everyone who is saved, right? It is, however, uh, it is, however, true that even at this time in the book of Acts, none of the New Testament had been written yet. And we know that while the New Testament was being written, there was this period of time where God had saw fit to give his people, whether that be Jesus himself or his apostles after him or the disciples of those apostles as we see here today, the power to do miraculous things so that people would know this is my man. This is the person that is carrying my message. This is the one that I've entrusted with my good news to share with all of you. And later, we know that these men and their close associates would sit down and write out what we today call the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. And so in this intervening time, this time of transition in the book of Acts, this is what's going on, and this is why these men are manifesting tongues and prophesying, I believe. All right, I'm running out of time quickly. They were able to speak with boldness. They were able to speak with boldness. And, and folks, let me just say this. I don't believe that boldness is something that some people are automatically given. It has to be cultivated. Uh, and we have to cultivate it by meditating on scriptures like Hebrews thirteen sixteen, where we read, so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Uh, this was a theme of Jesus' Don't fear man who can only kill the body Fear God who has more control over the soul you Kill the soul, right? So um, we need to remind ourselves continuously That our job, our allegiance Is to God and not to men And so we are going to we can If we meditate on that and we start to practice that We can be speaking boldly There were also reasoning, right? It says in the text in uh verses six to eight that paul was reasoning with them and this is something that i think gets lost a lot um we should be honing our sharpening our reasoning skills our our argument skills our apologetic skills so that when we come our faith is a reasonable faith the bible squares with reality the reality that we exist in it makes sense when you practice it when you practice what God has said you know the book of proverbs is basically general revelation right it's 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 you know if you speak the truth if you are, are you know if you're the type of person who fears God uh, that's the beginning of wisdom you know all these things um our faith is a reasonable faith and and James makes that very clear James 3:17 but the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceful gentle open to reason there it is Full of mercy, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. They were also Paul was also persuading in the synagogue there and in, in persuading people, and uh, I just, I just want to point something out to you that is very consistent with the fact that at least some of some Christian values were. Uh, utilized in the production and the creation of this country. So for example, when we send our senators, our congressmen uh, down to Washington, D.C., we don't send them with clubs and spears and guns to, you know, basically threaten the other side into passing laws, right? We want them to go down there and make good arguments and show good data and persuade. This is a very Christian thing. This is not at all indicative of how many of the empires of this earth once operated. Amen? It was, you're going to believe what I tell you to believe, or you're going to get it. And so Paul is not threatening anyone. He's persuading them. He's telling them the good news. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11. And then one last curious thing on this point is this, is that Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God. If you're keeping score, if you're paying attention at all to the book of Acts, you'll probably figure out, as I did, that up until this point, Paul, when he would go into these synagogues, when he would go into these places, he was trying to convince people that Jesus was the Christ. That was pretty much the theme of his first missionary journey, his second missionary journey. He would go into the synagogues and reason with the Jews and the Gentiles and tell them, you know, the Old Testament talks to us about this Messiah, this Christ, Jesus was that guy, and let me explain to you how that is. But here, on his third missionary journey, on his stop here in Ephesus, he seems to be turning from backward-looking to, let me tell you why what happened with Jesus was meaningful in our rearview mirror in, in past history. And now let me tell you, start talking to you about what's coming, the kingdom of God. I find that fascinating. I find that very interesting. And um, I think there's going to be more to come on that. Uh, Paul seems to be, perhaps it was the fact that the, the, the reality that Jesus was the Christ, that that understanding is now growing. It's, it's spreading. Um, it's kind of become common knowledge that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the one that they spoke about. Uh, and so now he's turning his attention from looking backward to looking forward to the kingdom of God. All right. I'm going to shoot over time here. Last point, effective solutions. Somebody asked me after the first service, what's that have to do with computers? Just read any software package and you'll see that they promise you effective solutions, right? Uh, Verses 9 and 10. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... He, that's Paul, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the good news of the Lord, the good word, the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So what's going on here? First of all, something that you should notice is that there's separation. Paul is not preaching a message that produces lovey-dovey kumbaya, let's all hold hands and just join the fellowship of man and, and play ring around the rosy. That's not the message that Paul is proclaiming. I don't believe that Paul or we were or should be jerks. I'm using the vernacular. The common parlance of the day. But when Paul taught the clear message that Jesus came to announce, it produced separation. Verse 9, When some, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, by the way, that tactic is upon us every day. If people don't want to believe the good news of Jesus Christ, they attack it. They portray it as, uh, they, they speak evil of it. They portray it as a way of hatred, a way of oppression, a way of... Uh, you know, in some cases, men dominating women and all this kinds—all this nonsense is out there because this is the reaction of people who um, don't want to believe in the gospel and they want to continue in their unbelief. Anyway, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. The hall of Tyrannus, historians tell us, was a, a, an institution of higher learning, And this institution of higher learning took, according to history, took about a two-hour siesta in the middle of the day. And the thinking was, is that that is when Paul did his teaching. He either paid some rent or somehow got access to that facility. And in the hall of Tyrannus is where he set up shop. And for a few hours a day, he would teach the disciples about Jesus. This created separation. And this should not surprise us, brothers and sisters. Jesus himself said this, do not think, Matthew ten thirty four thirty nine, 39, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And of course, we know that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Verse 35, for it has come, for I have come to set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his, old, his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, Paul stayed in Ephesus for a long time. And we don't know exactly why that is, but apparently there was some correspondence going on between him and Corinth, between Paul and Corinth at the time. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, we read this, 1 Corinthians 16, 7 to 9. He says, For I do not want to see you now just in passing, like I don't want to just do a brief flyby. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Why did Paul stay in Ephesus? Paul stayed in Ephesus longer than anywhere else. Why? Apparently because though there were adversaries, there was friction. There was effective ministry. People were coming to the Lord. People were being discipled. They were growing in their faith and it was good. Finally, last thing we see, message received. Um, this continued for two years so that all the residents of, of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's the last verse of the text, and in it we read that Paul's the setting up of shop and of Paul in Ephesus at the house of Tyrannus, where he was teaching, in the capital of Asia. I'm I don't know if there were people in Asia who became disciples who went out and did commerce out in the outlying country. If people from the outlying country came into Ephesus to do business or to to visit relatives or whatever, and they heard about Paul and they went and heard him speak. But Paul set up a strategic ministry, and in that strategic ministry, he was effective at getting the message of Jesus Christ out in that country. I also have, I think it has something to do with the fact that he was duplicating himself by, making better, carb- by bi- uh, making better copies, better disciples than Apollos did and sending them out. What's going to happen with critical theory? I don't know. I don't know. But it need- it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking that needs to be corrected. It needs to come in line with reality. It needs to come in line with the word of God. And uh, perhaps it will be corrected, and perhaps it, it won't. But Acts chapter 19 gives us some, some help with bad thinking, right? Acts 19 informs us that sometimes bad or incomplete ideas about Jesus can take hold and spread. But it also helps us to understand what to do about it. And what to do about it is exactly what Paul did. He spoke the truth. He, he understood who Jesus was, what he came to accomplish, he developed his abilities to speak boldly, to proclaim the truth, to do it in a persuasive way, and he, got, he did the work. And I would argue that because he was in Ephesus, he chose to do the work in a strategic way. So by way of po- possible uh, application, here's just a few things to consider. Can you articulate effectively the good news of Jesus Christ? And when's the last time you tried? Remember, our mission. We hang it up in front of you all every week so that we will remember to love God and to love others, but don't stop there. Make disciples. Much like you learn the Bible by taking it in bite-sized chunks and then beginning to apply it and share it with others. That's the process of making disciples, right? And then, secondly, uh, how can you develop boldness to speak? I know it's scary. You've got friends that don't know the Lord. You've got family members that don't know the Lord, and you want so desperately, you're praying diligently for them to to know the Lord, but you're, you're afraid to open your mouth. How can you cultivate boldness so that you can speak? And then finally, because I see so many faces today that I don't normally see. I'll just ask one last question. Have you yet decided to follow Jesus Christ? To trust Him as your Savior from sin and to make Him the Lord of your life? Those are Christian cliches. Let me break it down for you a little bit more simply. To trust Jesus as your Savior from sin simply means that you you know that He died on the cross for your sins. You believe it to be true And you're choosing to trust what he says in his word as your guide for this life, as as your manner of life. You also trust that God is going to begin a work in your life by sending the Holy Spirit to shape you and to change you into Christ-likeness. In other words, he's going to make you into Christ-likeness. He's going to preserve your personality, your talents, your abilities that he's blessed you with, and he's going to put those things to work for his kingdom and for his glory. But in order for that to happen, you have to say no to self and yes to him. If you'd like to do that, uh, one of our elders will be up here in front to pray for you, talk to you, minister to you. I'll be at the door to minister to you. If you've not yet made that decision, won't you do so today? Father in heaven, what a blessed day this has been. The music, the choir. Our our voices joined together in song of praise to you. The fellowship, the baptism. The word of God opened, read, preached, and internalized in our minds. Drive it deep into our hearts, Father. We want to be more like you. For your honor and glory. And for your purposes on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.